we have a, a very special uh, a day today. Um, at the end of our service, we are going, um, we're going to be hearing the testimonies of some petitioning members. Um, uh, for those who are petitioning for membership, and because there are so many of them, to be honest with you, I decided to go ahead and cut the corporate response time. So no questions this morning, but you're still required to pay attention or Anthony will still make you feel awkward and so will I. Uh, and, and thank you for Anthony to stepping in this morning and, and helping out for our, our brothers who are out of town this morning. But we are really looking forward to that. But in the meantime, let's focus in on the scriptures and onto the word of God in Ezra chapter 6. Providence, I think this with uh, the testimonies that we are about to hear this, this uh, in, in just a little bit. So chapter 6 has been primarily about what God has been doing. It's been primarily about God himself and, and how he cares and how he loves his people. How he has been faithful to his people, that he has been faithful to his, to his promises to his people. In Ezra chapter 6, the, the temple had been rebuilt, right? That was the, the, the biggest monumentalist, that's not a word, monumental occasion of, of the whole book. And the temple is finished, it's rebuilt, but people gathered together, they celebrated the dedication. That's what we, we, we spoke about last week, the celebration that took place at the temples. And it was a celebration of great joy, joy in what God had been doing. Now, it wasn't a celebration in comparison to the first dedication in size and offering or even attendance, but it was still a day truly of great joy because it wasn't about a building, but it was about the Lord. It was about what God had done for his people and how he has provided, how he has fulfilled his promises to them, and now this temple represents that now the Lord dwells with them once again. And they made an offering for the dedication, they celebrated, they made the priority of making the sin offering to worship to enjoy Him is what their purposes were. There's great joy and peace and worshiping and knowing God. They prioritize their worship as well, according to the scriptures we see, because it was how God has truly revealed himself is in the word. The priority of God's people is shaped by God's word. Our priorities as a church are shaped by God's word and nothing else. Not my agenda, not your agenda, now, it may have some of my flavor flavor in there, but it's not my agenda. What stands out is the Lord's agenda. And we can delight in the fact that God has given us his word. That's what we talked a lot about last week. Now, this is all very important because it sets up where we are this morning in, in our passage. In fact, it, it spills right over uh, in, into what we're going to see this morning. What was Israel going to do now? I mean, it's like, again, they kind of hit that, that, that pinnacle of, of celebration and, and joy. And if you're familiar with Israel's past, 
man, they're, they're like a, a yo-yo, right? They're up and they're, and they're, they're up and they're down, right? So we might even expect, might bask in the glory for a little bit, um, but then they might start patting themselves on the back and, and then begin to neglect God's word and neglect obedience to God's word. You might remember the book of Judges. I mean, it's just a, a nonstop yo-yo of back and forth, right? It's, it's kind of like, unfortunately, and I hate to say this, but it's like being a Braves fan, right? We have our ups and we have a whole lot of downs, right? Just when things start to go well, I mean, the coronavirus throw, threw them like a softball of, hey, you only got to play half the season, so when you choke, let it be like in December when you're hanging out with your family, not in October, right? And we, all, we get all of our hopes up and then hopefully they still got one more, right? Don't listen to me, totally. Still got one more. History's on my side, though. And they trained me well, right? And Israel's kind of like this. But this time, it's not the case. They don't choke. They don't, they don't choke here. In fact, what they do is they continue in obedience to the scripture. So the temple's done, everything's ready to, to go. And about a month later, after the temple was dedicated, dedicated, and they celebrated that great day and made the sin offerings and all those things, they came back again to celebrate the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that's what they did. They celebrated these things. They celebrated the Passover and, these, and this feast. During the 70 years of captivity, they, were not, they didn't observe the Passover. They didn't observe the, the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is the first time in, in well over 70 years, almost 100 years, a whole, a, a whole century of, of not being able to celebrate the Passover. And so you can imagine its anticipation about a month later for them to enjoy the Passover together. That's what we're talking about this morning. Ezra chapter 6, starting in verse 19, and we're going to finish up chapter 6 this morning. On the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover, for the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests, and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile, and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanliness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel, and they kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with joy. For the Lord made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. May his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his inspired and errant word for, our, for his glory and our joy. Amen. So do you see the main point of the text is the Passover. The Passover is at the center. It's what they, they gathered once uh, uh, again to do. And, and Passover, out of all of the feasts that Israel was to celebrate, there were only three of them that required all the males of the nation to show up in Jerusalem. 
And Passover is by far the most important feast of all the feasts because Passover, and including the Feast of Unleavened Bread that, that kind of comes right on the heels of Passover, is the mark. It's kind of the, the mark of when their nation began. It's when they became a, not just a, a family and then a people that was enslaved, but now they were a, the people of God, right? They became a nation of, of a people. So in this passage this morning is showing us, uh, what is this passage showing us this morning? Thousands of years later beyond the Old Testament. Why is this important? Why is this particular Passover occasion important? As Christians, we don't celebrate the Passover. We're not commanded to, to observe the Passover. In fact, in the New Testament, there are really no particular holidays or holy days that we are to commemorate or to observe, except the Lord's Supper, and the Lord's Day. And that's it. Those are the only exceptions. And we celebrate these things because of the resurrection of our Savior Jesus Christ and the, the picture of the gospel that the Lord's Supper shows us. So why would we stop here in these four verses as if they are important for us today? Well, just by virtue being in the scripture and by default, they are important. But what I want you to be able to look at is beyond just the event and the celebrating of the Passover by these returned exiles. And I want you to ask the question as I did. What is God doing? What is God showing us here? What is God doing here? Why is this particular obser observance of the Passover recorded? What is he showing his church. What is intended for us to see? You know, in the book of Jeremiah, the prophet told us that God would again deliver his people from captivity, and he did. They celebrated that last time in the dedication of the temple. That was a celebration of God's faithfulness. But also the prophet Jeremiah and Isaiah also foretold of when the Lord would provide a new deliverance. A new deliverance that would totally eclipse the exodus from Egypt and really make small the exodus out of Persia. An exodus where, where God would restore his people. Not just Israel, but a people gathered from all nations, all tribes, and all tongues. And, and this Passover though probably small and insignificant in the eyes of man, only four verses long, it points toward and anticipates the fulfillment of those prophecies by Jeremiah and Isaiah. In fact, this observation or this observance of the Passover is the last time in the Old Testament recorded of God's people holding the, old, the, the Passover. Now, they continue to, but it's the last recording of that event until the New Testament. Until the New Testament. This has great significance in what God is doing and what God has done amongst us. There is a really big shadow casted over that Passover. And that shadow was the cross. 
You see, this passage, just a simple celebration of the Passover 16 BC, was meant to draw the people's affections for something more, for something more and something greater, something that God had promised that he would do. And you know what? We know what that more is. We've experienced what that more is. We've experienced the the work and the power of the gospel to transform hearts and lives. And what we see this morning in our text, in our passage, essentially is a very clear foreshadowing of the gospel. What they anticipated is what we remember, and we remember the gospel. So what we see this morning, I think, is a structure of the gospel. Very simply, a structure, a three-point structure in this text. The first is, what does God require of his people? What does God require of his people? Look at verse 19. It says, on the 14th day of the first month, April 14th, 516 B.C. I read that one of the commentaries. Like, well, they like to know that. That's pretty neat. The returned exiles kept the Passover. Right? So, so this is what's happening. This is the overarching point of the passage. This is what they're doing. This is the event that they're celebrating. Now, I want you to take in consideration now that most likely at this point, every person there that day had never celebrated the Passover before. By this point, most likely, even the previous generations who were there to see the foundation built most likely have passed by now being over 20 years later. This is a whole new generation who have only known captivity and now this very small thing of freedom. And it says that they kept the Passover, which means they were still looking back and trusting in God's faithfulness that he has had to a previous generation but also knowing that God had liberated them from Persia. In the time of Moses, for hundreds of years, Israel had lived under the threat of a genocidal monarch, the Pharaoh. When Pharaoh was just a baby, Pharaoh became paranoid and he, of, a, of a prophesied deliverer that would come. And he ordered the infanticide of every male Hebrew baby because of a threat to him, a perceived threat to him. And when Moses became that deliverer, he began to judge Egypt. On the night of the Passover, a far greater and severe threat had come. It wasn't Pharaoh. It was the Lord. He showed that he is far more powerful, far more threatening in every way compared to a pharaoh. There's no hiding from God. There's no running from God. There's no negotiating from God. And God told Moses that on this night, I will pass through this land and I will kill every firstborn in all of Egypt. But regarding the Jewish homes where the sign of the Passover blood was seen, the Lord would pass over that house. 
If the blood of the lamb covered that home, then the angel of death had no claim there. In those homes, with the blood that covered over the the lintel and the doorposts, a sacrificed lamb whose blood was used to spread over those things, its lifeless body would be lying on the floor in each house, with his throat cut and his blood sprinkled. The Lord's judgment came. And for those houses with the doorway covered with the sacrifice of the lamb, the Lord's judgment came and left in peace. And this is what they were remembering. And this is what they were keeping. And this is what they were celebrating. But with each Passover, and frankly, with any offering that they would make, and any sacrifice that they would make, there was always one massive problem. There was always one massive problem. Look at verse 20. It it lets us in. It says, For the priests and the Levites had to purify themselves together. All of them were clean. The priests and the Levites had to do what? They had to cleanse themselves. They had to purify themselves according to the scriptures. Now, this may seem like a a minor verse that we can just pass quickly through, but this was a very meticulous, very particular thing that the priests had to do. This is no minor step. They had to be very meticulous because with one mistake coming before the Lord unclean, before the Lord ceremonially unclean, they could suffer the consequences of God's judgment in being unclean and die. Why? What's the problem? Why do they need to be cleaned? Why would they face God's judgment if they are doing the Lord's service, if they weren't cleaned in these very meticulous and very particular ways? Well, first and foremost, and this is extremely crucial to the gospel, is that our Lord, our God, the creator and maker of all things, the sustainer of all things, he is holy. And he is distinctly holy. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. And he is sovereign on all of those things, right? He's sovereign over all things. But in his power, in his sovereignty, in his knowing, he is holy. He is eternally separate and distinct, in particular, from all impurity. The scriptures say, Who is like you, O God, majestic and holy? There is none like you. All of the law in the Old Testament, every prohibition, every cleansing, every ritual cleansing, Every ritual, every requirement from what they should eat and what they should not eat, what to touch and what not to touch, what kind of clothes they could wear from the very fabric of things is all a testimony of the holiness of God and how God's demand of his people is that they are to be separate and they are to be holy. God's holiness is on display in the Old Testament with every particular detail. It's God's holiness and his separateness. I don't know if that's a word. Sounds right. In his perfect 
righteousness and his justice is holy. When God enacts his justice, he is doing it out of his holiness. When he gives righteousness, he is doing it out of his holiness. And therefore, if God then is holy, he demands of his moral creatures, us created by him, holiness and purity and cleanliness. Israel was to be holy. Leviticus 19.2, you should be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And by the way, it's not the only time this verse is quoted in the Bible. It's quoted in the New Testament as well as it in the Old. Because God's people are called to be holy and separate as God. So we have a very big problem. God is holy and we are not. We need to be cleansed. And, and that's the second thing. That's what the priests realized. They realized that they were unclean. That they were sinners who lived in a fallen world. And by living in a fallen world, no matter how hard they try, they were going to be stained by their own sin, by their own temptation, by those around them from death, from everything. And that they needed to be cleansed and that they needed to be made pure. You know, before any of us would ever attend a wedding that you were invited to, there's not one of us who would, wouldn't make sure to clean up the best that we could and wear the most appropriate clothing that we could to that, to that wedding. And what would it communicate to the bride or groom or the, the families of the bride and groom if you showed up in your hunting clothes stained with blood and dirt or your gym clothes or pajamas? I think that would say very loudly that you really don't care. That you really don't care for the couple or the importance of the ceremony, especially the holiness, the separateness, the significance of the ceremony. Imagine then when we presume we can come before the Lord, the creator, the maker of the universe, in any way unclean. The priests did not, nor could they live up to the standards of God's law. Therefore, they had to constantly clean themselves and go through the ritual purifications. Which, by the way, those rituals were prescribed by God himself so that his people could come before him. Even in all of those things, God is being merciful that God will provide. Brothers and sisters, there is not one of us who before the work of Christ and his regeneration of the Holy Spirit, we too needed to be cleansed and purified. Romans 3.23 states it very clearly that for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We didn't just trip over a step. We fell down the whole staircase. I heard it said one time, there's a, you can think of it as a river. And on one side of the river is, is righteousness and holiness and heaven and all that stuff. And on the other side is us. And there's some of us who can jump further than others. We can jump further over the river, but we're all getting wet. We all have fallen short of the glory of God. I don't care if you are Shaquille O'Neal 
and you can jump as far as you want, or Michael Jordan, you can jump half the river. It doesn't matter. We're all going to get wet. We're all falling short of the glory of God. And in Romans 6.23 says that the wages of those sins, that uncleanliness, that impurity is death. We too needed to be cleaned. We needed to be purified. And we needed not only to be, not just to be washed by water, right? It's not water that makes us clean, but we needed what? The blood of a sufficient sacrificial lamb. That's what God requires. But let us look now to what God has provided. Look back at verse 20. I think this is the middle of the verse, right? It says, So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles and for their fellow priests and for themselves. So between 4 and 6 p.m., all these lambs were brought to the, the temple by each family for the priests and the Levites to sacrifice. And, and by now, the, the, the people could be up to about 70,000 worshipers that day, which would require around 7,000 lambs to be sacrificed. The Levites would dress in their white linen robes, and, and they did the work of slitting the throats of each lamb that was brought to them. And the priest would, would catch its blood in a basin, and then they would take that blood and they would pour it over the altar of God for the forgiveness of sin. The lamb then would be, would be filleted, and all the fat would be removed and taken to the altar again and burnt as an offering to the Lord. The Levites then would clean up, and then they would start all over again. 7,000 lambs. The rest of the lamb would then would go home with the family. That later that evening, they would roast it and they would enjoy it and begin to tell younger generations the symbolism and the, all the things that God had done to deliver his people. This whole carefully choreographed, bloody occasion was a teaching moment for God's people, and particularly, as the scriptures say, for the children. But when the children come and ask, hey, why are we doing this to this lamb? Ah, let me tell you, son, we needed to be cleansed before the holy God that he passed over us. In that first Passover, the blood of the sacrificial lamb was the people's protective covering from the avenging angel, the wrath of God that would come and kill every firstborn in every household in Egypt that did not display the blood of the lamb on its doorposts. The blood brought peace. The blood propitiated God's wrath. It satisfied God's justice in relation to those who claimed its protection. And this is what was offered during the Passover. For all the returned exiles, for all the priests, and for the Levites, for everyone. It was for everyone. Everyone needed the blood of the sacrifice. Well, clearly, we, we see and we hear 
that it's pointing us to the New Testament. In the New Testament, we see Jesus on the night that he was arrested. He presented himself as the Passover lamb. He presented himself as the Passover lamb, that his flesh would be split. His blood would be spilled. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Jesus is the lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world, as John the Baptist proclaimed. The reason why the Exodus and the Passover, brothers and sisters, is so important and is by far the most important event in all of the Old Testament is it points directly straight at what we absolutely see very clearly in the New Testament. The Passover was a real event, but it foreshadowed a greater new exodus, a greater deliverance and Passover of how God would not only provide a substitute, God would provide the perfect substitute, the perfect lamb who was the son of God, who could in himself as that perfect sacrifice, could himself bear the whole wrath of God that sin deserves. And that this sacrifice would stand in the place of all sinners and would cleanse his sinners and give them new white robes. We are sinners, as we've already heard. And we needed not just another lamb. We needed the lamb of God. We needed a substitute that only God could have provided. And he has provided his son God is holy. And if God was only holy, that would be so terrifying. We would all would be doomed. But God is also loving. And he loves his people. And when you put his holiness with his love, we can rejoice in that because that gives us the gospel. He loves his people. And he has graciously, lovingly provided for his people and made them righteous. Do you remember we just quoted Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But it continues in verse 24. So don't just memorize 3.23. Verse 24 says, and are justified, made right by the judge of the universe, justified by his grace as a gift. You're not earning this sacrifice. You're not raising this lamb. The sacrifice has been provided as a grace, as a gift. And it is given to us through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25, whom God put forward as the propitiation, the satisfaction of the wrath of God by his blood. Whose blood? The blood of Christ Jesus. Not of a lamb, but of the blood of the sacrificial lamb, Jesus Christ, to be received by faith. Man, that's good news. Not only do we see what God has required, but we see what God has provided. And this sacrifice that he made was once and for all. No more sacrifices, no more offerings, no more rituals, no more striving, no more worry, no more fear. If you are in Christ, then he has set you free. And if you are free, then you are free indeed. Because you have been justified not by any of your works. They are as filthy rags.
but they are justified by the perfect work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And we've received his grace by faith in the redemption that Jesus has provided on the cross. 1 John 1, 2. 2, 2, excuse me. He is the propitiation of our sins, and not only for ours, only, but for the sins of the whole world. What's amazing about that text is when you look all the way back to Ezra 6, in verse 21, our text is foreshadowing that. Look at verse 21. It was eaten by all the people of Israel, the sacrifice, right? Who had returned from exile. And also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, this is just amazing. Because it would seem earlier that, that Israel wanted nothing to do with the other people in the land. They're racist and they're xenophobic. No, they cared about holiness. And when these people did what? When they came and they separated themselves from the land, they became clean, what did they do? They brought them in. Now, we're, we're not sure if these particular peoples were Gentiles. Could have been. It also could have been some of the Jews that might have remained in the land and just became extremely secular during the exile. We're not sure, but either way, they were all in the same boat. They were all in the same place. But what is clear is that they were welcome as long as they separated themselves from the uncleanliness of the land to worship the Lord according to the scriptures. So what is that pattern then? Right, with the, the foreshadowing is the work of the gospel, the inclusive work of the gospel to bring in all peoples from all nations and all lands. But also the pattern that we see of those people doing is what? Repentance and faith. What were they repenting? They were repenting by showing they're, they're, they're making themselves clean. We see their faith by trusting in what? That that sacrifice would make them clean. That it would forgive them. And it was foreshadowing what Jesus brought and what now we are experiencing. Trusting in a provided substitute by faith, repenting from sin. This is a shadow of the gospel back in Ezra 6, revealed now to us in the new. We trust and rest in Jesus, our substitute and our sacrifice. His completed work, our Redeemer, and our Lord. But what about you? Have you trusted? Have you repented of your sin? Have you trusted in the work of Christ and only? God richly provided by His grace his son. And he has eternally made those who are in Christ clean and righteous. Not given us our own robes, but the robes of Christ. And we put off our old selves and we put on Christ. That's what God has provided. And lastly, we see what the Lord does for his people. Verse 22. 
and they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. For the Lord made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. This verse is pointing us to the blessings of the gospel. Those who have received the redemption of Jesus Christ, what we, what we receive in the gospel. And that is first, in Christ, the Lord makes us joyful. Last week we celebrated, we, we were told to celebrate joyfully, but today we see now that it is the Lord who makes us joyful. It is the Lord that makes us joyful. 62 times in the New Testament we see the word joy. And it's, it is an incredibly important theme throughout the, Old Te- or throughout the New Testament, is our joy. Galatians 5.22 tells us that one of the fruits of the Spirit, one of the marks of regeneration, new life in Christ is, you guessed it, joy. See, I was a prophet. You guessed it. Joy. And joy isn't just happiness. It's not jovialness. It's not anything less than that, however. But it is a steadied pleasure in God himself. That's our joy. Our joy is a steadied pleasure in God himself. We delight in God. And we enjoy God because of who he is. He is God who has provided the deliverer, his son, and has adopted us into his family. He's holy. And we only deserve what? Wrath and justice and death. But yet in his love and kindness and grace and mercy, he provided a perfect sacrifice to redeem us for all time and clothe us in a righteousness in his own righteousness and make us a part of his family. How could you not have joy from that and peace from that? And second, in Christ, the Lord works for our good. As he works for the good of his people, turning the hearts of the king, he is working for our joy and for our holiness. Holiness and joy may not always align with our desires and what we want. But he is God, and he always knows what's best. And what's best for us is always holiness and joy and satisfaction in him. Most of us are familiar with Romans 8.28, and it says... And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Verse 29, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of of Christ, of his son. What is that? Conformed to what? Holiness. Conformed to holiness in order that in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, so that we would look just like our brother. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. So he's justified. How? He's justified by, uh, we justified us by Christ. He's our sacrifice. 
in those whom he justified, he also glorified. Is that not God working all things out together for your good? For those whom he called, he will conform us to the image of his son in order that we would be glorified. And lastly, in Christ, the Lord prospers his people in his kingdom. He prospered the work of the Israelites, and so the true Israel, the church, he does as well. What did Jesus promise his church? He said, upon this rock, I will build my church. He also promised at the end of Matthew's gospel that he would provide for us in this work in this work of building the kingdom and being part of the, whole, the kingdom, and that he will give us his Holy Spirit, his presence, so that we will always know that he is with us. He said, I'm with you always. He has provided, he has saved, he has redeemed, he is sanctifying us, he is making us more like Christ, and he will prosper his people in his kingdom. From Ezra chapter 6, we see the gospel. We see the foreshadowing of the gospel. We see what we know and what we experienced in Christ. Isn't it amazing and wonderful that we can look back and that we can see throughout all of history that God was working for the salvation of his people, for his glory, and for our joy. In just a few minutes, we're going to hear some testimonies. And what I hope you will hear and see is exactly the things that we saw in Ezra 6. Sinners who were absolutely hopeless in saving themselves and being able to cleanse themselves, and yet God providing a substitute, a lamb, a savior. And by his grace, they come to have faith in him and repent of their sins. They responded in faith and repentance. And now, as we will hear their testimonies in just a few minutes, we get to see as a church the marks of the Lord's work in them. We see the goodness of God in them. We see the grace of God in them. We see evidences of God's grace and evidences of God's mercy in them. So I pray this morning as we hear their testimony that once again you are encouraged by God's work. God's work that only he could do in you, in them, and in your church. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for showing us the gospel once again. The pattern in this observation of the, the Passover reveals to us, Lord, the, and shows us what we have experienced, the joy of having the perfect substitute in Christ. What they were longing for, Lord, we remember and we give thanks for. And so, Lord, we're thankful for each 
work you have done in our lives. Thank you for providing your son. Thank you for sending your son to be our, our substitute, our sacrificial lamb. It is by your grace alone. And Lord, this morning as we hear are these, these testimonies from these individuals who are petitioning to be a part of this fellowship, Lord, may we hear and may we listen well and, and may we rejoice in the work that you have done in our hearts and you've done in our lives. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.